0: Pray and we will get into our text this morning. Father of mercy, thank you, that we indeed can call you Father because of your mercy and your grace to us, that comes supremely in your Son Jesus and His finished work and by your spirit. And we thank you that we can sing God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. And Lord, that is our the ground of our hope. It is the ground of our identity. And we thank you. We pray today that we could behold you, the living God, this morning from 2 Samuel 6. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's well-known work, The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is telling the young characters in this story, about Aslan, who symbolizes, as we know, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the emperor over the sea. And at this point in the story, Susan believes that Aslan is a mere man, a strong ruler who is to overthrow the witch. However, Mr. Beaver points out that Aslan is in fact A great and powerful lion. Just a side note Aslan is Turkish for the word lion. Well, this astounds Susan, who asks, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then Lucy responds, Then he isn't safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, he's the king. I tell you, our text today confirms both truths. We do not worship a safe God, but we worship and serve a good one. And that's why events and texts like these are so necessary for us to muse upon. As A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And at this point in David's reign and his life, we can say with confidence that David knew both realities that he's not safe, but he's good. So, for instance, in Psalm 34, a psalm that he would have already written. At this point in his journey, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David is musing upon the goodness of God in Psalm 34:8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Why? Because he's good. But verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. David knew that God, the Lord, is not safe, but he's good. And yet, it's clear, as we're going to see in this text, he did not know those realities at this point well enough. One thing he did know well was the Ark of the Covenant had been ignored. 1 Chronicles 13, which is the chronicler's account of this narrative, it tells us in verse 13 of 1 Chronicles 13, Israel did not seek it, that is the ark, in the days of Saul. Of course, we remember that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, had carried the ark into battle like it was a lucky charm against the Philistines, but it was captured and it was put into the temple of Dagon. God not only destroyed Dagon, he brought plagues on the Philistines, and so they, sat, they sent that ark back to Israel. And when it arrived in Beth Shemesh, some of the Israelites, who were just a bit too familiar with God, looked inside it, and they died. And so with humiliation, the Israelites placed the ark in the house of Abinadab in Kiriath Jerim, also known as Baal Judah, we see in our text today, where it sat disregarded for some five to seven decades. But now David sits enthroned over all 12 tribes. The Philistines and the Jebusites, the enemies of God, have been defeated, and he's taken the city of peace, Jerusalem. And now it's time for God's presence to be front and center in the city of this anointed king. But what we're going to see in the process, in the first nine verses here of our text, that this Lord, that David wants to be front and center in the city of Jerusalem, isn't a safe God. Look with me in verse 1. David again gathered... All the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, that's another name for Kiriath Jerem, where the, the ark has been for several decades, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So David would have been very aware that his decision to destroy the Philistines' idols. We saw last week when they defeated the Philistines, the Philistines left their idols. The idols didn't deliver for them. And the, Chronicle, the Chronicles tell us that David burned those idols. And he knew very well that that would not sit well with the Philistines. And so perhaps a second attempt by the Philistines to take possession of Israel's prized possession, the ark, would have been in the plans. And so in the effort to prevent that from happening, David assembles around him 30,000 choice men to bring that ark into a safer place. He was especially concerned for the ark because of its significance for Israel's faith. Its importance, I think, is most clearly seen from a text in Numbers 10. We have that on the board. Numbers 10, whenever the ark set out, it's the same ark that we see here, Moses said, Arise, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? And then in verse 36, And when it rested... He said, return, O Lord. So closely was the ark identified with the Lord's presence that when the ark set out to lead Israel, Moses would would say, arise, O Lord. And then when the ark rested, he would say, return, O Lord. The ark was not the Lord. It symbolized the Lord's presence. The ark bore God's name. You can see that there in verse 2 of our text. It was called by the name of the Lord of hosts. God's name is God's self-revelation. Anytime you meditate on the name of God, and I would say the central name of God is the Lord, and all of the other names we're given are just essentially extrapolations on that name. It tells us more of what it means that he's Lord. So when he, we read that he is Yahweh, Jara, we're learning that this Lord provides. When we read that he is Yahweh Rapha, we're, re- we're reading that the Lord here is one who heals. When, when we see that he is Yahweh Nisi, we, we're recognizing this is the Lord, our banner. When we read that he is Yahweh Shalom, we're reading that he is the Lord, our peace. So God's name is his self-revelation. And so David is setting out to bring up from obscurity the name of God. Of course, the obscurity here of God's name was Israel's deepest problem. David did not want to rule from Jerusalem unless God was there. It reminds us of Moses' words to the Lord in Exodus thirty-three, fifteen, 15, when he says, If your presence does not go with me, do not bring me up from here. And so the ark signified the Lord's presence, and it symbolized what kind of God he was, what kind of God he is. Five things in particular, and there's much more about God than these five things, but five things in particular that the ark teaches us about this God, this Lord. First of all, in the ark was housed a jar of manna. That manna represented God's daily provision. For his people between their exodus, their redemption, and the full possession of their inheritance. That manna symbolized that as your days, so shall my grace be sufficient. And so the ark symbolized that God is a resourcing God, He resources His people. He always provides. His grace is sufficient for you. The second thing that this ark communicated was that the Lord is a res- resident God. He resides with his people. He's always present with his people. Exodus 25, 22, The Lord said to Moses, as he's giving instructions on the ark, the construction of the ark, there I will meet with you on the ark. That was the meeting place. The ark was housed in the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's Shekinah presence was revealed, his His special revelatory presence. He was with his people in that glory cloud. The third thing we learn about the ark, or the Lord from the ark, is that the Lord is a ruling God. He rules. He's sovereign. He reigns. Notice verse 2 of our text. He sits enthroned. That's kingly language. He sits enthroned on the cherubim. Of course, the cherubim were the two angels that were constructed on the ark like the cherubim were established at the borders of the Garden of Eden to keep the sinners from coming back into the holy place, right? So the cherubim were symbolized. This is where God's holy presence dwells, but it also was where he sat enthroned. He is a ruling God. The fourth thing we learn about God from the ark is that he is a reconciling God. In fact, that's on the Day of Atonement. The the priest would sacrifice the... The animal. And they would take the blood and they would sprinkle the mercy seat on the ark, propitiating God's wrath on sin. And they would sprinkle it in front of the ark. And in that reconciliation, there's atonement. In fact, that's where the word atonement comes. At two the one meat. two, the one meat, or at one, the two meat, rather. At one the two meat. That's where the word atonement comes comes from. He is a reconciling God. And then fourth, or fifth, the ark symbolized that God is a revealing God. Exodus 25, listen to this. On the ark, I will speak with you. Of course, we know that in the ark were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which is the definitive way God speaks by his inscripturated word. This was God's will for God's covenant people. It was also where the Lord would reveal his will to Moses, Exodus 25, 22. And so by bringing the ark that teaches us these things about our Lord, David is announcing that this Lord's presence cannot stay any longer on the periphery of Israel's worship. He brings it into the city. He's going to bring it into the city of peace. That's verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab it appears that having it in Abinadab's house made no impact on anyone which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God in Ahio, Went before the ark. Now I want you to note the care here. The respect. David had the men set the ark on a new cart. Not an old cart. A new cart. Great respect for what's taking place here. Respect for the process. And leading the procession was uh, how with Uzzah guiding the cart from behind. And it's a joyful occasion. Look with me in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This was the Lord of the breakthrough, as we saw last week, This was his victory parade, if you will. They were celebrating Israel's deliverance from the Philistines by the hand of God, the defeat of the Jebusites in the city of peace. They were celebrating God's exodus, if you will, from exile. But this worship service was doomed from the start. And what this is going to teach us is no matter how good the musical instruments are, the musicians are, how celebratory a worship service might be, how happy the worshipers might be, it does not necessarily mean that God is pleased. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So thanks to Uzzah's reactive attention, no harm, no foul. Thank you, Uzzah. The ark remains safely on the cart. So the the, the celebration and the process to get that ark into Jerusalem can continue. Relief. Let the people say, thank you, Uzzah. But not so fast. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. If we are honest with ourselves, this likely bothers all of us. If we're being honest, after all, Uzzah was only trying to help. Does this bother you? Bothers me? Well, you say, well, doesn't bother me. God is transcendent. What if it was your son? What if it was your father? What if it was your spouse? What if it was your brother? What if it was your best friend? Texts like these bother us. R.C. Sproul in his wonderful book, The Holiness of God, and I gleaned from that book. I've read that book. It's such a good book. I recommend that book to you. He asserts that we think that Uzzah should have heard the voice of God shouting down from heaven, crying, thank you, Uzzah, but that's not what God did. This, again, I think, is more evidence, not that we need more evidence, but more evidence of the supernatural origin of Scripture. After all, this goes against our natural idea of who God is. This God is not marketable. If I'm trying to market God... I'm not going to take the people to this text. But understand, this is so important for us. Marketable gods reveal a whole lot more about the human marketer than they do the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, David certainly wasn't into marketing God, but that certainly does not mean that he had a full-blown understanding of who God is. He's troubled by this. Notice in verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out. It's the same verb that we saw last week, where he breaks out on the enemies. David had no problem with him breaking out on the enemies. Now he's breaking out on one of his covenant family. Because he had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. If you have a footnote in your Bible, that means breaking out against Uzzah. So chapter 5, verse 20, God broke out on the enemies of God, reversing, as we saw last week, the tsunami of sin in our broken world. But here, it's on a covenant family member. And it's in times like this that we learn what a person's true theology is when tragedy strikes. You find out what people really believe when tragedy strikes. And and here we learn that David's theology is a whole lot like ours. He, He responds... Similarly to the way we tend to respond in times like this. Essentially, I think he, he, he's thinking, Lord, this guy was simply trying to protect the ark. What's up with this? And the text does not seek to justify God's actions to us. There was a reason given. Notice just... In passing, verse 7, because of his error, but no elaboration. And as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes about the sovereignty of God, One of, so favorite, I, I have it written in the back of my Bible, by J. Vernon McGee. I can't say it like J. Vernon McGee. But he says this. He says, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) And that's true. But we tend to think that we 21st century enlightened types, those who live on the other side of the, the scientific revolution, are the first to encounter truths about God and Scripture that are troubling to us. But David's anger here blows that theory out of the water. And it makes clear that these kind of things didn't happen every day. Even then, it was not typical For God to to respond so immediately to sin as he did with Uzzah. Now, the uniqueness of this has likely to do with the the event's significance. They're, They're transporting the very thing that symbolized God's Shekinah presence. And We often see these teachable situations, especially at the commencement of new eras of redemptive history. So for instance, we see it again in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. So when there's a transition taking place in redemptive history, we often see these unique things happen. And they're teachable situations. But that's not to say that this was unjustified just because it wasn't common. Again, R.C. Sproul clarifies this by an illustration from his early days as a college professor. One day, as a rookie professor, he assigned three papers for his students. And in the first paper, 25 students did not turn in the paper on the due date. They had all kinds of good excuses. Professors could write a book on that. And he showed mercy. On the second paper, get this, 50 students did not turn in the paper. And he was merciful again, but this time with a warning. He said, if it happens again, you're going to make an F. On the third paper, 100 students failed to turn in the paper on time, and he gave them Fs. And what was amazing was their response, that's not fair. That's not fair. I'd love to see Danny Bowen's response when those students say that. Of course it was fair. It would have been fair on the first paper, but he had shown mercy, and now they were taking that mercy for granted and presuming upon the mercy. And so it is with God. The Bible is one continuous account of God's patience, God's forbearance, of God's mercy. But the balloon payment on sin inevitably comes due. Always comes due. And when it comes due, it's far from unfair. It's far from unjust. Indeed, it's righteous. Sproul says, it is the confusion between justice and mercy that makes us shrink in horror. When we read the story of Uzzah, when God's justice falls, we are offended because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. But I love the honesty of that text, of this text. David's anger, David's dismay is recognizable to all of us. But to overcome... This dismay. To deal righteously with this anger, we do need to ask what exactly was Uzzah's crime. After all, it's likely that most of us would have responded the way Uzzah responded. The ark is starting to topple, and we grab it and we settle it. For one, again, Sproul points out, Uzzah's touch of the ark neglected a failure to understand our fallen condition. Uzzah saw the ark headed towards the dirt. And he reached out because he assumed his hand was less dirty than the dirt. But consider this, the dirt has never rebelled against God. The dirt never responds in daily disregard for God's rule. The earth always obeys the Lord. The dirt cannot pollute the ark, but a sinner can. There's other reasons behind Uzzah's judgment. God had given clear instructions on how to transport the ark. It was written in his word. In short, let me summarize it. The rules were no touch, no look, and no cart. In touching the ark, Uzzah committed a capital crime, capital offense against God. Listen to Numbers 4.15. They must not touch the holy things lest they die. It wasn't to be touched. It was holy space. So there's a clear warning. And by the way, the warnings reflect God's dangerous, but he's good. What if he didn't give us warnings? The warnings reflect his goodness as much as they reflect his holiness. And putting the ark on a cart was a violation of the law. Number seven, verses nine and 10 says that only the Kohathites were allowed to carry the ark and they had to carry it on poles, not on a cart. The law was clear. The last time we saw an ark on a cart, it was with the Philistines. But remember, this was the Mosaic law, and the people of Israel were under this Mosaic law. Judgment is on the Philistines, but they were not immediately judged as the people of God were in this particular case. But David, in his anger could not see that. He couldn't reconcile that at the moment. Notice in verse nine, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now there is a healthy fear of God, a reverence and awe, which is healthy. It's healthy. That's why the psalmist would pray, unite my heart to fear your name. One of our biggest problems is we don't fear God. But this betrays an unhealthy fear because he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? His response was similar to the men of Beth Shemesh decades earlier when they had asked in 1 Samuel 6 verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Now this is the question of the Bible. In our culture, the question you often hear is how can a A good God allows someone to go to hell, but that's not the burden of Scripture. The real dilemma in Scripture is, how can sinners stand before a holy God? That is the question, but David, instead of preaching the gospel to himself, the gospel that answers that question, God's steadfast love, his faithfulness expressed through substitution. And he knew that gospel. Instead of preaching that gospel to himself, he responds in a way that many of us recognize in ourselves. Verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. He's upset. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David's thought appears to be here, I'll just withdraw. It's not worth the complications on my life. We see that even in churches. People find that church life is complicated. The reason it's complicated is I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And we're, we're, we're getting used to our justification. And we're getting used to our adoption. We're getting used to our identity. And, and oftentimes, because we're not fully perfected, sparks fly. And, and instead of persevering through the complication, ah, I'll just clean my hands of that. It happens a lot. Well, we certainly, this appears to be what David is doing here with the ark. God is just too dangerous to deal with. And next week, we'll see that God is going to gently, I love, can't wait for next week. He is going to gently bring David to the notion, you don't have to go on without me. How's about we change you? How's about we alter you? But for now, David ordered that the ark to be, uh, be taken, get this, to of all places, the home of a believing Philistine, the arch enemies of God. And that brings us to the final point, the Lord who is good, verse 11. Indeed, we have seen the Lord here who is not safe, but he is good. Verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Everyone else called a Gittite in the Old Testament is a Philistine. Why? Because a Gittite is someone from the city of Gath. Obed-Edom is a Philistine, but this should not shock us, because God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. This is one small micro example of the blessing of God coming on the nations. Even the perennial enemies of God, the Philistines, in this believing man, Obed-Edom. The presence of the Lord brings much blessing to the households where the Lord is honored. Our problem is that we believe God is a holdout. We believe God fundamentally is not good. That's why God needs supplementing. So we go on these perennial horizontal searches to supplement God. And that's our problem. God does not need supplementing. He is good. He's the author of good. He is good in itself. He is the very expression of that which is good. The very expression of that which is true blessing. And unlike every other character in this chapter, including David for a moment. David had his moments of weakness, didn't he? Unlike every other character in this chapter, the presence of God was not a threat to Obed-Edom. It was a blessing. And we can imagine how this went, went down. I don't know if David sent a messenger or David went himself, but he says, look, Obed, we've got this thing we want to put in your family room. Now, keep in mind, it all but destroyed Shiloh. And when the Philistines had it, I mean, boils and a curse fell on them. And then when we got it back, 70 men died just by looking at it. And then, I'm not sure you heard about Uzzah. But the point here is the contrast. That's the point of the text. The contrast at this place in the narrative between David's anger at God because he knows God is not safe But he's lost sight of the fact that God is good. The contrast between David's anger and Obed-Edom's perspective, which is the reality of things. God comes to bless believers with life, with blessing. But it has to be on his terms. And it's not because he's hard-headed or stubborn. It's because he's holy. The root word for, for holy means to cut. To cut. He is a cut above everything in the creation. Infinitely so. It appeared in Edward Lee, one of my favorite quotes on holiness. Holiness is the beauty... Of all of God's attributes, without which His justice would be but cruelty, His sovereignty, tyranny, and His mercy, foolish pity. But His holiness is the beauty of all of His attributes. And that's why we have to say and agree with Mr. Beaver. He's not safe, but he's good. So let's close this out by way of review. By going through the list of various responses. Give me about three minutes here. Of how various peoples and groups in our Samuel study have responded to the Lord's presence in the ark. And maybe you will find yourself in one of these examples. Which one most describes you? Maybe you're like the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4 who hope that God's presence will be a good luck charm for them. They have disregard for God otherwise. He's not who they worship. He's not who they daily commune with. But they have a desire. They have a will that they have established for themselves. And they believe that this God can help them fulfill their will for their lives. But we know that God will not be used that way. So so you'll see people today who who come to church for time. We had a fellow like that. He'd made some very poor decisions, shipwrecked his life. And then he's attending church here, but things are not getting fixed fast enough for him. So he turns his back on God again. He was using God. God will not be used. God is to be worshipped. Now when he's worshipped, things begin to take care of themselves. Maybe you're more like the Philistines who they have absolute disdain for the Lord's presence. The the Lord's presence just makes you uncomfortable. And that's likely due to the fact that you have unrepentant sin in your life. And the Lord's presence... makes you want to flee, like Adam as he hid behind the tree, Adam and Eve. And maybe it's because you realize if you were to die today, you have no mediator, that you're going to be held accountable for your sins, and you have no one to plead your case. You don't have a Savior. Or maybe you're like Abinadab, where the the ark just remained For several decades, but it it didn't seem to to bring any effect, little impact. Maybe you are a veteran to church life. You've been in church your whole life, but but the Lord's presence leaves you unaffected, as evidenced by your daily walk, your daily life. Your Bible is as closed as if there were No Bibles in a closed country. Or maybe you're like Uzzah. You're just too familiar with God. He's too commonplace with you. We see that in a lot of churches' corporate worship. Nothing could be more nonsensical than a casual attitude towards the Lord. Those who ignore him or despise him or are too familiar with him have a balloon payment coming due. But possibly you're like David in this particular text. This is not the pattern of David's life, but we see his weakness here. You want God's presence, but when you get a glimpse of who He really is, you aren't so sure you want to have much to do with it. Hopefully, many of us are like Obed Edom, who welcome the presence of God into all of your personal space. You welcome His presence in your living room, with your family, with the television on. You welcome his presence in your bedroom when no one is there but you. You welcome his presence when you have your computer screen open. You welcome him in all of your space. You welcome him at work. You welcome him at school, with your friends, with all the peer pressure. You welcome the presence of God. And you live in the blessing of that. You know he's not safe, but you know he's good. Indeed, let's go back to the ark as we close that symbolized those two realities as well. God is not safe. Yes, but he's good. You can approach God, but you cannot approach him on your terms. So he's a residing God. He's present with his people. He dwells with his people, and we know that supremely because of the Son of God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of the grace and truth. So the tabernacle points us to Christ, who is the very expression of, of that reality. God resides with his people. Of course, we know the ark also represented the reality that God is a resourcing God. As our day, so shall his grace be. That that manna, even Jesus said, that manna in the wilderness pointed to him, the bread of life. He said, you eat of this bread, you will never hunger again. What is he saying? I will be with you. I will resource your wilderness wandering, your journey from between your exodus and the day that you inherit the promise. It also represented, remember, that God is a revealing God. Of course, we know that Jesus comes as our prophet. And what does he do as our prophet? He reveals by his word and spirit. The will of God for our salvation. We also learned that the tabernacle communicates that God is a reconciling God. And Jesus comes as our priest. And he offers up himself a divine sacrifice to satisfy God's justice. And then, as our priest, he makes continual intercessions for us as the mediator of God's reconciling grace to us. Of course, we also know he comes as our king. And the ark teaches us that God is a ruling God, and that rule will be expressed through this king. A kingdom, Paul tells us, of righteousness and peace and, joy. and God as our king, Jesus as our king, subdues us to himself. The fact that we're here is, is subduing grace. You're not superior to your neighbors who slept in this morning. It's subduing grace. He subdued us to himself. He rules over us. All right? And he, he restrains and conquers all of his and all of our enemies. And the enemies are many, aren't there? But that is Jesus as our king. That's what the ark teaches us. And yes, he is dangerous, but he's good. And this word is for us to meditate on those realities. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you are holy and righteous. We have no business in your presence except the reality of your goodness incarnate in the Son of God. And I pray if there's any here today that do not know Christ may today be the day of salvation we ask this for his sake amen let's stay.